You know, initially, I thought that a cancer patient needed a financial economist about as much as a fish needs a 401k plan. <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot to contribute. But financial economists are exceedingly good at thinking about financial structures that reduce risk and enhance reward. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. Andrew Lowe's insights into how markets work lead him to tackle global issues. The MIT Sloan finance professor is using market levers to fix the problems of the world. I spoke with Andrew about his adaptive market theory and how he's using financial engineering to help cure cancer. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. For decades, we've been taught that it's impossible to beat the market because existing share prices always tell the full story. That understanding is based on the efficient market hypothesis. You said that this model actually reflected our economy pretty well, from the 1930s to the 1990s. What's changed? Why do we need a new model today? Well, you know, there are a number of things that have changed over the last 20 or 30 years. For one thing, the population has grown dramatically, and not just population, but the kind of population. So we've seen the middle class rise in China, India, other parts of the world, and that means that the traditional economic relationships across countries have dramatically shifted. Mm -hmm. Also, technology has changed, so we now can trade at the speed of light, and that's not always a good thing. <laughs> It can create instabilities that didn't exist before, and the financial world is much more interconnected than ever before. And finally, I think that the fact that we have government intervention on a much more regular basis means that the traditional risk-reward relationships are being altered systematically for policy objectives. So it's much harder now for investors to look at prices and get a sense of what things are worth because you've got large players that are actually making markets move in ways that have nothing to do with economic relationships. So your theory, the adaptive market hypothesis, works to account for the fact that we're not fully rational. What room is there in the market for emotional thinking? I would say quite a lot. In fact, if you think about human decision-making across the various different kinds of applications, you know that we approach various kinds of decisions, in some cases quite logically, but in other cases quite emotionally. And that's really the dual nature of human cognition. Mm -hmm. Once we embrace that difference, we can start to see that the theories that we've developed in the past are really quite limited, and we really have to expand our horizons to incorporate this kind of emotional impact on our decision-making. How do you see adaptive behavior reflected across the, uh, the spectrum, from individual investors to investing professionals, perhaps even to financial institutions? Oh, well, you know, there's no limit to where we see these kinds of adaptations. For example... You know, in individuals engage in certain kinds of financial transactions as a reaction to what they've experienced. For a period of time in the 1990s, the only lesson that stock market investors learned was to buy on dips. And then, of course, 2008 hit, and a number of investors discovered risk for the first time in their lives. And many of them have been indelibly altered by that experience. They really can't think about investing anymore because they've been so badly burned in 2008 and 2009. Those are examples of adaptations that may not necessarily be the best for one's long-term wealth, but nonetheless, they are part of human experience. On the institutional side, we see that investors are now much more sophisticated about investing across various kinds of asset classes. It used to be the case that institutions would fo focus on stocks and bonds. 
Now, in order to get diversification, they're investing in stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, infrastructure, real estate, private equity. The, the span of investment opportunities has really grown, and investors have really taken that challenge and uh, made the best of it. So people have really expanded their portfolios at this point. Mm-hmm. So you came out with the adaptive markets hypothesis in 2004, and then as you just mentioned, the financial crisis of 2008 hit. You were actually writing an earlier version of your book, I believe, at that time. How did your theory evolve during and after the financial crisis? Well, for one thing, I got a lot more war stories. (laughs) The fact that the financial crisis occurred at that point in time was, in many ways, uh, a proof of the theories that I'd been writing about back in 2004 and 5. In fact, one of the offshoots of that theory was a paper that I wrote on how the hedge fund industry was becoming more and more highly leveraged and that a disaster was brewing that would emanate from that particular sector. And at the time, it looked kind of crazy because why would a couple of hedge funds blowing up have any impact on the economy? But as we saw in 1998 with LTCM, hedge funds could play a very big role depending on what they were trading and how large their positions were. And not surprisingly, in 2007 and 8, when Bear Stearns and Lehman went under, hedge funds were at the core of their initial troubles. Right. So what does the adaptive market theory mean for the global business world? How should we adapt? I suppose that we have to start by studying the ecosystem and understanding what our role is in that system. A lot of investors and business people don't really think broadly about the uh, particular avenues of interactions that they normally engage in uh, across the various different stakeholders. They focus on the particular markets that they're involved in and the particular customers or suppliers that they deal with. But the system, we've learned, is very highly interconnected. And certain parts of the system that may have nothing to do with a given business could actually be an incredible source of value or devastation if shifts occur over the course of a few months. And so I think business people might want to start thinking a little bit more broadly about that system and to try to study it almost like the way an ecologist would study a particular ecosystem that they haven't encountered before. Mm -hmm. We've talked in other episodes of this podcast about the data revolution in business. The data revolution is also flooding our financial markets with a lot of useful information, information we could use to head off a global financial meltdown uh, if it's analyzed and shared properly. How can regulators adapt to these adaptive markets? One of the things that regulators need is access to large amounts of information. And by and large, they have that access, but they may not have been able to integrate that in the way that would be most useful. So data science is an area that uh, regulators, I think, need to make much more use of. And they're starting to, but somewhat more slowly. I think part of the reason is that financial regulation is really dominated by economists and lawyers, not necessarily by (laughs) computer scientists. So they may not be used to techniques like machine learning. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a little while before they feel comfortable with it. But I suspect that over the course of the next year or two, we're going to see more applications of secure multi-party computation in a number of domains, including financial industry. And do you anticipate that this will have very positive implications for the financial institutions as well as for investors? Absolutely. It's going to allow financial institutions to understand when their own industry is at risk and that there's a concern about systemic exposures and crowded trades. That's one of the real challenges of dealing with the financial crisis. It's that no one body fully understands all of the various different exposures. 
And by using this kind of a technique, you can allow lots of institutions to share their data and basically get back from that process aggregate information about the risks they're being exposed to. Andrew is applying his research on reducing risk to another problem that hits personally, for him and millions of other people. Andrew has lost family and friends to cancer, and it's made him think about how he can contribute to curing the disease. Often when we're faced with data and facts, we respond emotionally. Even the data we collect and the questions we pursue with it can be emotionally driven. You've had family and friends die of cancer, and you've talked about how money sets the agenda in cancer drug research. How can financial economists help cure cancer? Well, this is a very important topic for me personally because of those experiences. You know, initially, I thought that a cancer patient needed a financial economist about as much as a fish needs a 401k plan. <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot to contribute. But the more I studied the ecosystem of cancer drug development, I realized that there was actually an important bottleneck. And that bottleneck is in the early stages of drug development where the risks are greatest, but where the impact could also be equally uh, important. Mm -hmm. And in order to get beyond the so-called valley of death, you really needed to figure out a different way of reducing those risks. And that's where finance comes in. Financial economists are exceedingly good at thinking about financial structures that reduce risk and enhance reward. Mm -hmm. One example of which is portfolio theory, taking a, a bunch of uh, unrelated objects and putting them into a single financial vehicle can reduce the risks and increase the chances of one or two home runs. That's the focus of my co-authors and I when we started in 2012 and 13 putting together these various simulations of large portfolios of biomedical projects. And if they're structured in the right way, it turns out that we can tap much, much larger pools of capital. For example, using cancer bonds, uh, debt markets are much larger than equity markets. And so by using these new vehicles, we can actually get through the valley of death by bringing new investors into the marketplace. So you've mentioned the uh, number of $30 billion uh, being invested in these projects. Where, where are we currently? What do you see coming in the future? Well, I think that number was really a placeholder to indicate that we have to really start thinking at a completely different scale for biomedicine. Mm -hmm. Unlike app development for technology programs, a couple of hundred million is really just the beginning of a single investigation in a drug. And so you really need to have multiple shots on goal. And in order to do that, you need large scale. So right now we're in the early days where I think investors are trying to understand what the risks and rewards are of these portfolios. So we're starting small as usual. But our sense is that over the course of the next three to five years, we're going to see a number of multi-billion funds being launched. You know, one good example of scale is in the technology sector. Just last October, the Japanese software conglomerate SoftBank collaborated with the government of Saudi Arabia to create a $100 billion technology fund. Wow. $100 billion. I mean, that's just an incredible amount of money. And as important as it is for us to be able to take a picture of our cat and share it with our friends, <laughs> it doesn't compare with being able to cure cancer. And so the hope is that over the course of the next few years, we're actually going to get to that same scale. Terrific. You've described this as selling bonds to fund the war on cancer. How else could this be applied, for instance, to issues like global poverty, the water crisis? I think there are a number of societal challenges that this particular method would be appropriate for. Not all challenges can be addressed in this fashion. 
you really need to have the private sector's rate of return uh, on your mind when you're constructing a portfolio of this sort. Mm -hmm. But something like climate change or vaccines uh, or uh, fusion energy, those are examples where if you're successful, in the unlikely event that you're actually able to make a difference in those markets, you will earn hundreds of billions of dollars for your investors. So that kind of reward should easily be funded if you have the right financial structure. You know, it's really about taking chances on long shots. And one of the things that financial economists know is that the more chances you take, the more likely it is that you're going to succeed with any given long shot. Absolutely. Makes good sense. Andrew Lowe's new book is Adaptive Markets, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. He's also professor of finance and director of the Laboratory for Financial Engineering here at MIT Sloan. Andrew, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can get Andrew's new book, Adaptive Markets, at the bookstore, on Amazon, or through the Princeton University Press online. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu slash podcast. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Join us next time for Data Made to Matter.